Okay, there's a few points to make and emphasize from what we've studied in chapter 10. Some of the points that we need to consider. Number one, what is the reason for this list? Why, why do we have this information here in the Bible? For one, we need to consider the, its place in the ancestry of Christ, the lineage of Christ. If we did not have this lineage, then it would not be um, possible or it would be di more difficult to prove the lineage of Christ. He needs to be a descendant of Adam. He needs to be a descendant of Noah. He needs to be a descendant of Shem. He needs to be a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He needs to be from the tribe of Judah, the family of David. It needs to happen that way. And the, Bib the Bible does emphasize this point. That's why chapter 11, verses 10 to 32, take us from Shem to Abraham. From Shem to Abraham in chapter 11. This is also why in chapter 38, where we have this unfortunate but also strange incident that occurred between Judah and his daughter-in-law. Between Judah and his daughter-in-law, where he thought that she was a harlot, a prostitute, and when she conceived, it has the name of the two sons that she conceived. It says here in Genesis 38, 27, And it came about at the time that she was giving birth, that behold, there were twins in her womb. Moreover, it took place while she was giving birth, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But it came about as he drew back his hand, that behold, his brother came out. Then she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. So he was named Paris. And afterward his brother came out, who had the scarlet thread on his hand, and he was named Zerah. Well, these two sons are born of Judah, Perez and Zerah. Now, why? Why is that mentioned? It's mentioned because we do know in chapter 49, Genesis 49, verse 10, that the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. To him shall be the obedience of the peoples. That means the nations, the Gentiles. The Gentiles will obey Christ. Shiloh is another name for Christ. And whose descendant is he? He's a descendant of Judah, according to this verse. Then go to Ruth. Ruth chapter 4. Ruth chapter 4. Remember Boaz and Ruth. When they marry, she conceives. And it says in Ruth 4, 17... And the neighbor women gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. So they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Notice there. Immediately it says Perez. Why Perez? Perez because they know, the prophet knows, and even the inhabitants of Bethlehem know. That's why they celebrate. They know that Judah through his son Perez, will be the ancestor of Christ. They know that. And that's why this is listed. And to Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron was born Ram, and to Ram Aminadab, 
and to Aminadab was born Nashon, and to Nashon Salmon, and to Salmon was born Boaz, and to Boaz Obed, and to Obed was born Jesse, and to Jesse David. There we go from Perez to David. Perez to David. Then go to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1. The genealogy of Christ. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The son of David, the son of Abraham. To Abraham was born Isaac, and to Isaac Jacob, and to Jacob Judah and his brothers, and to Judah were born Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and to Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron Ram, and to Ram was born Aminadab, and to Aminadab Nashon, and to Nashon Salmon, and to Salmon was born Boaz by Rahab, and to Boaz was born Obed by Ruth, and to Obed Jesse, and to Jesse was born David the king. And then it goes from David down to Christ in verse 16. And to Jacob was born Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Further, Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3 will take us all the way back to Adam, to Noah and Adam. Luke chapter 3. The genealogy in Luke 3 is, a re, is in the reverse order of Matthew, but with more names because he goes all the way back to Adam. And also because his lineage is through another ancestor of Christ. And so, verse 23, Luke three twenty-three, And when he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being supposedly the son of Joseph, the son of Eli, and it goes, so forth, all the way to verse 31. Verse 31. The son of Malea, the son of Menah, the son of Matatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah. And 34. Jacob, Isaac, Abraham, Terah, and we go all the way back to verse 36, the son of Canaan, the son of Arpachshad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, and from Noah all the way to verse 38, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Therefore, this genealogy in chapter 10, as well as the one in chapter 11, are very important to establish the fact that Jesus Christ was born into this world as a descendant of Adam, descendant of Noah, descendant of Shem, of Abraham, so forth all the way to his birth. That's why this is here. It's here for that reason. And if he is not one of us like this, then he cannot save any of us. If he is not one of us, perfect man, then he cannot save any of us. So if we compromise these genealogies, we compromise Christ, his person and his work. Another uh, thing to consider in relation to this chapter is that all men, all people, all mankind come from one source or from the descendants of Noah. We all come from them. 
whether we can say with exact precision or not, that is the intention of this chapter to identify us like that, to identify us all coming from Noah. Let's establish that fact that we all came from Noah's, uh, Noah and his three sons. Mm-hmm. Chapter 7, chapter 7, who entered the ark? Chapter 7, verse 7. Then Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him entered the ark because of the water of the flood. Noah, his sons, his wife, his sons' wives. Right. How many? Let's look at verse 13, seven thirteen. On the very same day, Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. That, from that we can calculate eight people. Eight people entered the ark, 7.13. Then how many people left the ark? After the flood of over a year, how many people came out of the ark? Look at chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 16. 8.16. Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Verse 18. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. There too. Those eight who entered are the same eight who left the ark. The same eight. Then, chapter 9, verse 19. 9, 19. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. The whole earth was populated from them. This is also what we saw at, in chapter 10 and verse 32. Chapter 10, verse 32. These are the families of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies by their nations. And out of these, the nations were separated on the earth after the flood. It's very clearly asserted here, the whole earth came from this family. Noah and his three sons. They all came from the three sons of Noah. Furthermore, Let's see an example of this in Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy 32 and verse 8. 32 verse 8. 32 8. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of man... He set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. That last phrase, according to the number of the sons of Israel, I think means as Israel was numerous and abundant, like the stars of heaven and the sand of the seashore, that's the way God separated the sons of man. He separated them on the earth and set boundaries for their habitation. God is the one who did that for all the peoples of the earth. This is what the Apostle Paul says in a foreign place, in a foreign land, in the land of the Greeks, at the Areopagus or Mars Hill. It says, Acts 17.26, And he made from one every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of of their habitation. God's the one who made 
every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. He determined their times and their boundaries, the boundaries of their habitation. Now, the Bible's clear on this too, that all of us come from the three sons of Noah. We all come from them. And if we all come from them, then that means we don't come from anywhere else. Correct? Sure. If it asserts that fact, then that means that nobody who currently lives comes from any other ancestor. Correct? It has to be from Shem, Ham, or Japheth. From their, those three sons, we all come from one of them. That's the way it is. That's important for various reasons. It establishes the fact that nobody who lives right now who are considered people or humans are from another source are from another source so that we cannot say that that other source, that other ancestor is better than the other ancestor. Correct? Like our ancestor is not better than their ancestor or theirs is not better than ours because we all come from Noah's three sons. If it could be established that there were people currently living today who came from Neanderthals, ape men, hominids, these are different words describing people so supposedly who existed in part animal form and part human form. And even before the, the combination of the two, they were animals, right? And before they were animals, they were plants or something. Right? That's the way evolution teaches. It teaches that. The Bible has no place for that. It has no place for any of that. Absolutely not. It asserts this so clearly that there is no room for the other. Right. There is no room for the other. Then, if we establish that fact, it's not only important in relation to just history or science or anthropology sociology It's not just important in those areas, in those fields of study, but it's important in reference to ethics and in reference to salvation. No doubt. In reference to ethics, we are all made in the image of God. There isn't a superior human creature compared to another creature or person that we call humans or something that's a lesser creature. We can't do that. We cannot do that in terms of linguistic or racial or uh, ethnic distinctions. We cannot say one is superior to the other. It doesn't depend on that. We can't do that. There is no premise or basis for saying that whatsoever. So any ideology, any philosophy, any political movement or ideology, it cannot be based on superiority of one above the other. We're all the same. We're all humans, we're all created in the image of God. So that's on the ethical um, issue. On the salvational or soteriological issue, how are we saved? If we reject what the Bible says, what we've just established, if we reject that, then we cannot be saved. Right. We cannot be saved because of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 21. 1 Corinthians 15, 21. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. 
For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. Who is the man who brought death, and who is the man who brought the resurrection of the dead? Verse 22, he specifies with the names. As in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. If we hold to the belief of ape men, then that means that God created Adam, but there were other creatures that lived in the time of Adam, and God used one creature, this is what they believe actually, that God took one male from one group of these creatures, of these ape-men creatures, he took a male from one group and a female from another group, and then he brought the male and the female together, he endowed them with the image of God and called them humans, and that's Adam and Eve. Now, if that's the case, if that's the case, then what about what this verse is saying? Because that belief also believes it's contingent upon the belief that death and misery existed in the world even before God created Adam and Eve. Right. For millions upon millions of years, in fact, four and a half billion years of death and misery, disease and chaos existed before God created Adam and Eve in that way, in the ape-men way, taking a male from one group and a female from another. That's the way they believe. How can one hold that belief when verse 21 says, By a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Death came by Adam, and a death, not just spiritual death, it is spiritual death, but it's also physical death, came by Adam. Physical death to himself, physical death to his posterity, physical death also to the animals. That's when the first animal died. Genesis 3.21 happened after the first part of the book of Genesis, right? Genesis chapters, uh, chapter 3, 1 to 20 precedes not only in the chapter, but chronologically what happened in verse 21. That is, sin came, death came, the pronouncement of death came, the spiritual death first immediately, and the physical death eventually. That's why he said, from dust you uh, uh, came, and, and to dust you shall return, Genesis 3.19. He says, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. You're going to die physically. So his physical death, the thorns and the thistles, the animal death, all happened after Adam sinned. And that's the importance of all this. We all come from Adam, we're all dead in Adam, and the only way we are alive is in Christ. Dead in Adam, alive in Christ. Both physically and spiritually, dead in Adam and alive in Christ. That's the way it works. And if we hold to anything else on the origin of man, it undermines everything. It undermines it all. If we don't believe the premise for as in Adam all die, if we don't believe that, then we cannot believe, no matter how many times we say we believe, we cannot believe, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. It's the same sentence. If the premise is wrong, then the conclusion is wrong. 
we can't believe the conclusion if we don't believe the premise. They both have to be true. So that's why this is so important to believe, this genealogy like this. Furthermore, I wanted to clarify, if we read this chapter like we did, nobody, once reading this chapter, comes away thinking that we're talking about a fairy tale or mythology. It reads as straightforward narrative, historical narrative. And many such passages are there in the Bible. And then whenever there is poetry, it's often quite clearly so. It's quite clearly poetry. We don't have anything over here calling God uh, or saying God has, um, he will cover you under the shadow of his wings. There's no verse here that says God is our fortress, our rock. There's no verse here talking like that, right? There's no verse here saying God is my light and my salvation. There's no verse here saying that God, uh, I am the door or I am the shepherd, I am the good shepherd. There's no verse like that using a metaphor in this passage. So therefore, we should take it as straightforward, literal, factual, historical narrative. That's the way we should take it. We must take it that way because there are many who do not take it that way. You may have heard, or if your children have gone to college, or if they have even gone to seminary. In Christian universities, there are professors who teach the very opposite. They say that this is fictitious. This is legendary. This is not factual. In fact, the liberal commentators, they have a phrase. They call it the patriarchal narratives. It sounds nice, patriarchal narratives. It sounds nice, but what they really mean is in the narratives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and even Moses, and even all the way to the time of David, they don't believe that what we have in the Bible is 100% accurate, factual, and historical. They don't believe that. And by patriarchal narratives, they're saying, well, let's figure out what little kernel of truth might be true in this Abrahamic narrative of Genesis 12 to 25. Let's figure out what might have been the case in Abraham's time, but we cannot just take at face value what the Bible says about it. No, this chapter, as well as other chapters, many chapters of the Bible, are straightforward historical narrative, explaining it as plain as day, this is what happened. So let's believe it that way. That's what happened. And if we don't believe it that way, what does it undermine? It undermines... The gospel of Christ. We just said that Christ's genealogy is based on this. It used to be, decades ago, for a while, for about a century or more, that liberals used to say that there was no proof or no certainty that Jesus Christ existed. Now liberals don't go that far on that issue. They don't go that far. But still... They were so wild and crazy with their own speculations, claiming to be scholars, but unscholarly with historical facts. They used to assert that. But still, we can't assert that whatsoever. We can't give any ground to that kind of thinking, because the Bible is true. It's historically accurate, not only in reference to Christ, but in reference to all people. Um, Another... uh, a couple of clarifications, and then we'll open it up to questions. The, the name Shem, you might have heard of, uh, you, you hear commonly this phrase, uh, uh, anti-Semitism, 
um, anti-Semitic, anti-Semitic, or it comes from this word from Shem. It used to be, in, even in English, that instead of saying Semitic, we used to say Shemitic, S-H-E-M, but these days we've dropped out the H and just used the S, so Semitic or uh, anti-Semitic. Well, it's used properly so, or mostly so, it's used in reference to the Hebrew people or the Jewish people, the people who are in the nation of Israel today, right? It's used of them. And I think it's a, a mistaken name. It's a misnomer. We should not say that. Because as we read here, the descendants of, of Shem are more than just the Jewish people, right? right? The Hebrew people. So if we're going to call it something, let's call it anti-Jewish, anti-Jewism or something like that. We have to give it a more specific name because that's really the target. When people are anti-Semitic, they're not against Muslims or Arabic people. That's not what's going on. It's against the Hebrew people or the Jewish people specifically. It's against them. So my, my proposal is let's quit using wrong words and use the correct word to describe the reality of what's going on. Okay, so anti-Jewism or anti-Hebrewism or something like that, but not anti-Semitic uh, um, bigotry or anything like that. Another one is Philistines. This word Philistine is a reference to the ancient peoples that lived on the coast, on the western coast of the land of Canaan, adjacent to um, the people of Israel, but also adjacent to Egypt, right in between them, on the Mediterranean coast, the eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea, or the western side of the land of Canaan. The Philistines, but today there is no evidence of their existence, no evidence whatsoever of their existence today. Yet, in the time of the Romans, in the first century and the second century, in the time of the Romans, the Romans were trying to put down the Jewish rebellion in that part of the Roman Empire, in the land of Israel, both in Jerusalem and in, in that territory. So the first rebellion is known as the first Jewish revolt, AD 66 to 70. In that first Jewish revolt, the Romans came. They came with great force. They came and destroyed the city, they uh, massacred a lot of people, they exiled a lot of people, scattered them in other parts. They also destroyed the, the city and the temple. The temple where Jesus frequented, they destroyed that temple in AD 70. That was the first Jewish revolt. Well, the Jews in 132 to 135, AD 132 to 135, there too, at that point, they revolted against the Romans. Um, so, during that revolt, the Romans were, also came and, and put it down with great force, but then they scattered the Jewish people even more to other parts of the empire and elsewhere. They scattered them, and they even prohibited them from living there in that land. And not only did they prohibit them from living there, they renamed it. Instead of calling it Judea, Judah or Judea or Judea, instead of calling it that, the Romans said, no, we're going to call it Palestine, named after the Philistines. 
Palestine, Philistine, right? You see the consonantal similarity? Palestine, Philistine. We're going to call it Palestine. But there are no Philistines. The Romans just decided they don't want the Jews living there, so we're going to call it Palestine. So that's another term I propose that we quit using because it doesn't accurately describe the region, the territory, the name of any people, group, linguistic group, ethnic group. It doesn't properly describe anybody today. So why do we use the word Palestine when it doesn't apply? We should call it Israel. We should just call it Israel, right? right? Because that is the, the rightful owner of that piece of that territory is the people of the Jews or the Hebrew people, the people of Israel. So just call it Israel. Why call it Palestine? If you call it Palestine, you're buying into the assumption that it does not belong to Israel. It does not belong to the Jews. So don't start, don't let somebody who's in the wrong start your conversation with wrong terminology, a wrong premise, wrong assumptions, and then misdirect the whole conversation. It would be akin to asking, um, when did you stop beating your wife? I'd like to know. <laughs> you, you, you start with the false assumption that the average man that you meet beats his wife, or he used to beat his wife and now he doesn't. No, that's not the case. So it's the same with this. Okay, and then furthermore, languages. In reference to ethnicities, languages, um, races, in that sense, I believe that it started at this time. Now, what, exact, what the exact causes were of that are unknown. But we can, we can say probably there were two causes. One, if the languages, uh, if the one language was broken up and we have many languages now, then that means that those people who speak the same language, however many they were, they would gather together, they would, would huddle together, and they would make their way to different parts and settle elsewhere together, right? So if they are intermarrying because they can speak the same language, they are intermarrying, then naturally over time there's going to be more similarities among them than the, the people in other places, right? And those in other places, because they also intermarry more, there's going to be more similarities to them. Their physical features are going to be more similar than elsewhere. And I think that's what happened at that time. And also, some of it is climate. Um, in colder climates, there is a tendency for the complexion of the people to be lighter, and then in hotter climates, for their complexion to be darker. So that perhaps initially... It was that way, or partly that way, but the climate itself likely added to that. It probably added to that. And that's another thing that often is asked when we come to this chapter. So I wanted to make a statement. All right, well, let's take a break, and we'll come back for questions.